This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is December 28, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Hi, yes, my name is Mike D'Antonio, and I was at Hofstra Radio several times. I started as an undergraduate student in 82 and lasted till about 87. Left, went into the real world, so to speak, and came back in 2001, worked there till about 2006, took some time away, and came back in 2011 and worked there till about 2012. Okay. So lots of stuff to cover here, but uh, thank you so much for coming back and doing this again. It's always a a great time talking with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. I enjoy talking to you as well. Great. Um, So just as a reminder, we talked about in our first conversation, some of the positions that you had at the station, but just remind us of what you did at the station. Sure. How long is your arm? Because it's, it's really a, a long one. I, I was I, I started out doing continuity, which back then meant you know not only making sure that uh, all the PSAs and promos were logged, but actually writing the PSAs and promos. Then I was assistant chief announcer to a girl named Carol Itzkowitz, who we also called Carol Brooks, and uh, she was an interesting character. I loved working with her. Then uh, I was one of the first executive engineers. They didn't have that position. And Mike Larkin, who was the station manager at the time, needed some help uh, to corral in the engineers, he said. So he created executive engineer, and there I was. Then I did uh, classical music director. I was not the Mm. first classical music director. I think it was Carl Bucking, Lynn Hamilton, and then me. Uh, But uh, I was the first one who knew nothing about classical music. So I had to kind of learn it uh, on the fly. And then, of course, we started the classics from Hofstra, which was uh, the classical music show that ran for six hours uh, that began shortly before I started. But that's how I learned all about classical music. And I ended up uh, as the PR director for a couple of years there, you know, uh, making sure that the station got uh, some coverage on on campus and off campus. Uh, I, I would you know, write the press releases and public relations uh, duties and things like that, occasionally uh, coordinate an event, that type of thing. Okay. Um, so let's go back to the beginning for continuity director. And oftentimes there's, there's one of two ways that people get into that position. One, they show up and they're eager to do something and someone says, Hey, here's a great job that you know nothing about. Or there's the other sort of thing where like, well, no, I know what radio is about and I want to get in on the ground floor in this important thing. So where do you fall in that spectrum? You, you nailed it on the first one, Brian. I mean, it was kind of like <laughs> I walked in the door. What can I do? Oh, we need a continuity director. Here you go. Uh, they had, Feels they, they, great, here, right? <laughs> here's, here's, here's what the PSAs and promos look like. Do it. Okay. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Krause was the general manager back then. And, and you know, the, he's had a lot of stories about him. But one thing he was was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And he was a good teacher. But he had a style where he wanted you to try to do it on your own first before he taught you. So I did, and I displeased him, and then he showed me how to please him, and then I pleased him from there on. So it was wow. kind of like, that was pretty, pretty common with a lot of people. But uh, it's, it's a good way to learn. It's an interesting way to learn, and I did learn a lot. I, I, actually, I learned more about keeping logs and writing promos and PSAs, because promos and PSAs I had heard all my life on the radio, so writing them wasn't that difficult. But mm. keeping the logs was something that, unless you're in the business, you don't really know too much about. So that's really where, where my learning came in. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned not uh, getting off on a great foot with Jeff. Was it something about the way that you were writing PSAs or promos or the scheduling? What happened that uh, there's a little bit of conflict? No, 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 not at all. It's not getting off on the uh, on the wrong foot. It's that he had a specific way of, of, of wanting things. And if you tried to do it a, a different way, like if you um, phrase things in a different way or if you, you, you used a, a term that he wasn't crazy about, he wasn't just kind of like, well, change that. He's kind of like, well, change that, and here's why, you know. And 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 that was fine, actually. It ended up being a, a good thing. So I don't mean to to make it say that he and I did not get along. We actually got yeah. along from day one. But it was just it, it, his style was very much like, you know, uh, there's a certain way of doing it, but you need to figure that out, and you need to make sure that the way you figure it out falls within my spectrum, and then I'll correct you and help you find the spectrum. So mm. that's basically what it was. Okay, and I, I think in a lot of ways, Jeff's manner and his style was that if he saw something in you, he would make sure that you got the information that you needed or you get the right criticism. And as opposed to some people who are just there as a goof, he probably wouldn't put the energy in because he had a lot to do. But if he saw something in you and he saw a possibility, he'd make sure that that you understood what he was looking for. Is that is that I, fair? I, I wholeheartedly agree. He also didn't call people by their names. He called me PR for two straight years. So, uh, but yeah, I got it. No, absolutely. You're right. That's so, so true. 
Hmm. So you do continuity for, uh, I guess, for a year. Is that is that right? For uh, about six or eight months, yeah. Okay. And then uh, while I was doing continuity, I was also helping out Carol as the assistant chief announcer, which basically was just kind of like scheduling the announcers and making sure that they got through their clearance. They had this this clearance thing that they had to do. They had to read a certain amount of spots in a certain way, and she had to listen to it and approve it and whatever. So I would schedule their clearance auditions, so to speak, and then once they were cleared, make sure they got a spot and worked with uh, the program operations director and the other people who you know made sure that everything went on the air to make sure that these people got their spots and got on the air. Okay. So was this for like staff announcer positions? Yes. Okay. So people who would come on uh, on someone else's show and read the public service announcements and promotions and things of that nature? Well, well, not just that, but also in order to, to, to get a show, you had to be cleared to announce and to engineer. So to be cleared to announce was, it would be to clear a host, to host a show. So a lot of times, you know, it would, it would not just be the staff announcers. It would also be the people who were potentially hosting a show. They had to go through a, a, a process also. Okay. Was there a training class or was it just sort of, here's some copy, let's see how you do? You know, under under Jeff, there was no formal training class unless you took the courses, which were separate. Those were right. you know, he he had uh, writing for radio was a separate you know three credit course that you took uh, through Hostra, but you didn't need to t- to take that. But if you did, it helped you. But uh, no, there was no formal training class until you know Bruce's administration, much much later. And I'll tell you about my my my, my life in Bruce's administration later on too. That was an interesting time. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll come back to that. So let's continue along the line. So you do assistant chief announcer, you're getting people cleared, you, you're doing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And then there's another opportunity for a position that, that like you said, was relatively new, but uh, was nonetheless pretty important in terms of keeping the station running in a professional manner. So that was executive engineer. Could you tell us a little more about that? Sure. Well, uh, Mike Larkin, who was a station manager at the time, was a big guy on on engineering. He wanted you know, everything to sound a certain way. So he was doing all the engineering clearances at one time. And then basically I was, you know, kind of his sidekick. I, he and I became very close. So when I started at the station, he had been there about a year or so before I was. So we developed a friendship and a mentorship uh, relationship there. And he said, okay, well, you know enough about this. Now you've been with me as I've done this enough. It's, it's your turn to start clearing people and giving them spots. So that's what I did. You know, we developed a, a system. They had to be able to do this segue and that type of a segue. They had to be able to, to know, you know, what, what, what all the readings meant and, and how to take the readings and all that type of stuff. And if they, passed through a certain amount of steps or whatever, they got their clearance and then they got their slot. And then I had to you know, ma- manage their, their, their maintenance of that slot to make sure they were doing it over, I think it was the first three or four months until they finally were relieved of me and then were on their own, you know, type of thing. Uh, and it was, it was interesting because it, it, it taught me a lot about responsibility. It taught me a lot about, you know, dealing with a lot of other people and scheduling and all sorts of stuff that went in with that role. It was a, it was a, it was a great position to have. It really was. So were you sitting in while someone was engineering, sort of uh, keeping an eye on them, or was it just a, a check-in on occasion and, and listen to their shows? It, it, you know, it was kind of organic, Brian. It, it, it depended. I mean, some people, you know, from, from, from their first shot, from the first time you sit with them when they, before they even get on the air and they go into a studio, you can tell if they've got some engineering chops or not, usually. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it was a person who had some kind of a background, whether they worked in high school radio or whether they had a previous experience on the air somewhere else or whatever it was... So you would treat them a little bit differently than the person who knew nothing about it at all. So if they were coming in dry, obviously, yeah, I'd spend some time with them and kind of watch over them as they did their shifts the first couple of times until I was confident enough that they were fully cleared to do it. You know, I was the engineer on duty and they were kind of training under me, but basically it was they were working the board and I was kind of overseeing. And uh, then after a while, they would go out on their own. You know, and again, from time to time, I just check in with them to see how they were doing. But at that point, they were pretty much, you know, cleared and were able to do their engineering shifts as they wished. Hmm. So I know you had some experience within the station doing continuity and the announcing stuff. But, you, you know, we talked about this previously that you grew up listening to stations like WABC and, and Dan Ingram. And, and you had a pretty good ear for, you know, what was good radio. You know, I think you, you came in to the station with an idea that you wanted to do commercial radio. So you must have had a good sense of, of what things should sound like. Was there guidance from, from Mike or Jeff or anybody else to sort of like, well, this is what it should sound like? Or is that something that you pick up over time? Uh, it's something you pick up over time. In fact, I think what they were trying to do is to have the radio station sound as non-commercial as possible. 
yeah. uh, because back then it was it, it was kind of a, the, the, a paradigm shift going on right around us. So we didn't even realize it at, at, at the time. The station was not really in the best light with the university. It was kind of like this thing that happened to be at the college that the college wanted very little to do with. So we weren't too worried about sounding professional. We weren't too worried about sounding, you know, uh, commercial or anything like that. It, it, nowadays, of course, it's a, it's a training ground for professional broadcasters. But back then, it was mm. kind of like people who want to get into the business and have some fun and maybe do other things, but play radio while they're here. And I don't mean play radio as if to say it was sandbox radio, because it certainly wasn't. But it was an, a learning experience and how to do radio and what you wanted to do with it after that was, was, was your business. But sort of towards the end of my time in the 80s, and then definitely when I came back in the 2000s, that had shifted. And it became something that was very much, you know, directly towards like, this is how you do good radio. And it was interesting because I, I learned a lot from watching everyone else around me, not necessarily so much from Jeff and Mike and the people who were in charge then, but from my, you know, my, my, my peers, you know, the mm. people who had been on the air for a while and some of the newer people and took their ideas and saw what they did. Of course, I kept listening to the radio at the time. I had outgrown WABC after a while and I was listening to 99X at the time and the, some mm. of Z100. Z100 was just starting to make a, make a bubble now and whatever. So I was listening to that and I was picking up what they were doing and seeing how I could incorporate what they did into what we did, but still sound different. You know, and I, and and that was a it was it was a challenge, you know. And then you, you deal with all these different formats on the air too, because at the time we weren't a twenty four hour station yet. We were signing on at eight, signing off at two in the morning, and we signed on at eight. It was six hours of classical music after a while. Actually, at the beginning, it wasn't even that. It was two to two. It was two in the afternoon to two in the morning. Uh, we had some public affairs and then jazz and then some rock into the evening and a few other public affairs shows sprinkled in. But once the university got involved and started to treat the radio station a little bit differently, which was kind of about 84, I think. Yeah. Uh, then then we, we, we hit the air with the classics from Hostra, which meant we went on the air at eight o'clock in the morning. And we had to be super serious because the president of the university, Dr. Sheward at the time, had wanted uh, a station that he could play in his offices, you know, and, and so it was classical music and very dignified and things like that. So we learned how to be dignified broadcasters. And that was kind of kind of neat. It was kind of a shift and kind of a change. But uh, we went with it. And uh, unfortunately, some people didn't end up sounding that way, but we, we found <laughs> other homes for them. On, we found other homes from the station if they didn't. But a lot of people did. And a lot of people really picked up on it. And uh, our news department was growing right around the same time, too. So it was really good to get you know a good foothold on, on how to do news. And they had started this program called the Communicast News right around that time, which was a half an hour of news every night, which was the first time they had done that in a long time. They had one back, I believe, in the 60s and 70s, and then they dropped it. And then back in the 80s, they picked it up again. And uh, so, but basically we had almost no staff. It was kind of like, you know, you had a few people who wanted to do news announcing and they had a rip and read. So you kind of had to do what you could with the AP stories and change them around a little bit and rewrite them. So it taught you how to rewrite a story. It taught you what stories to use. Uh, the little bit of live sound you could get or the little bit of wild sound you can get from time to time you brought in and, and you just kind of played it by ear and fi figured it out as you went along. And then, of course, eventually we know how that developed into an award-winning news department at the station, mm -hmm. which was great many years later. Uh, but it was interesting to be there kind of at, at, at the beginning of that that thrust, you know, and and that's really, you know, how how you learn. And, and I, I picked up as much as I could. I hung out with some of the sports people for a while, even though I wasn't a sports guy. I learned from them how to, how to do it. I, I picked up on their passion, you know. I hung out with all the different format people I, I, I knew about. A show we called Rave Up, which was, you know, really very kind of pop focused new wave. And then there was uh, the post-punk Marissa Pop Party, which was the kind of underground new wave. And I learned a little bit about that stuff, too. And then that, of course, evolved into a hip hop show, which is kind of sort of in one form or another been around for a long, long time. Uh, and and uh, it was interesting. Uh, they, they had a guy uh, on Saturday nights doing reggae who I got to be somewhat friendly with. So I learned about, about that. So hanging around with the other show hosts and my, and my college uh, age peers taught me a lot more than I really learned, you know, from the management at the station at the time. So it's absorbing all these different ideas and sounds and styles, uh, which is a great opportunity. And that's, you know, one thing that's really great about Hofstra Radio through the years is, is a chance to try different things out and see what works. And, and generally, uh, I'm sure there are a few exceptions, but generally people are open-minded and like, oh, you want to try this out or you want to learn more, you know, come on in, come to my shift or whatever. I think that's always been a constant throughout that, that people are always encouraging. Oh, absolutely. No, no question about it. The doors were never shut. You know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you wanted to be involved, you were always welcome to be involved. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to test your memory banks a little bit here. You mentioned the, the evening newscast. Do you remember anybody who was involved with that uh, or perhaps a news director or anchor? 
Uh, I'm trying to remember. Let's see. Um, I think Andy Hershorn, or the, actually he was a sports guy, but mm-hmm. I think he did news for a while. Greg Fennell was doing the news. Greg Fennell was his name. Uh, and he and I ended up working with him in one of my first commercial radio jobs in New Hampshire, kind of ironically. Uh, let's see who else was there at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember some of that. That's that's going back a while. Okay, <laughs> that, that's going let's, back quite a bit. Uh, that's fine. The names the names will come to me. They're just not coming to me right now. Okay. Well, those are those are two good names to to know and and to remember. Um, and then the classical thing. I wanted to double back with that as well because when when I arrived in 1990. And my friend Mike and I came on campus and we heard the classical music. And our, our first reaction was, well, we're not doing that. And, you know, being, <laughs> I, think, I think we were still in high school. We weren't even at the university yet. But um, there, was, there was often a lot of resistance among the student body to doing the classics because it was boring or it wasn't what you were familiar with. But it was really quite an opportunity to expand the station and get more airtime and get more resources from the university. And it's, it's, you know, as as adults now looking back, we can go, oh, well, that makes sense. But at the time, I think a lot of students were reluctant to get involved with the classics or, or perhaps with the station because of the classical music uh, during the day. But it was really uh, a chance for more people to be on the air and more resources to go uh, into the station. What do you remember about that that transition to starting up the classics from Hofstra? You know, it's it's kind of funny. I remember distinctly with, with uh, going one day with uh, with Mike Larkin to WHLI, mm-hmm. uh, which was a station on Long Island uh, at the time. I don't know if they're still operating, but they had uh, donated their classical music library to us once they found out that we were going to classical music. So I remember going, picking up all those records and bringing them back. And we were having a discussion as we were doing it. You know, we're doing all this work. Are these going to be used? And and they ended up that we had like this this very full classical library that definitely got used for sure because you know six hours a day is a lot of music even when you're talking about these long classical pieces you know it's it's it's, it's a lot of music and we were talking about how, how can we sell this to the students and it was difficult there were a handful of people that wanted to do it and then along comes this man named carl bucking who was this mm. this uh, this british gentleman who knew a lot about a lot of things including classical music and he loved it and he came he was he came on the air and he just had this way about him that he made classical music fun, if you can believe that. And uh, he was the first classical music director we had at the station. I think I mentioned that. And he, you know, really kind of put forward the idea of, of looking at it in a different way. And then before long, after you, you stick with it for enough and ha- after the university helps you kind of promote it because the university got behind promoting the station once that happened, because it was, you know, the, the reason we went on the air was to, to help the station, to help the university at, and help the station at the same time. So they started, you know, getting people interested in that. And before long, after a couple of semesters or so, we started to have people lining up to, to, to find out more about it. Now, again, it became one of the things that if you, in order to be cleared for an air shift, you had to do a classical shift. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like one of the things, well, you, you know, we, we know you can announce, now we're going to give you a, a format within to, 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 to how to follow the format and, and, and to, to see if you can do this also to see if you can combo, which was a big deal back then. Of course, everybody does it nowadays, but back then they would have separate engineers and separate announcers on some shows. And we tried to streamline things by making people engineers and announcers together. We called it mm-hmm. comboing. So it was an opportunity for them to learn how to combo with, with pieces that they didn't have to keep changing every three minutes, you know? So that was another, another good thing about the classics. It gave people the opportunity to learn how to utilize the, 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 the equipment, to learn how to do an air show, uh, and, uh, you know, really hone their talents. And after a while, it started to become something that with the rare exception, people realized they, they, why it was being done and they didn't mind it as much, but mm-hmm. yeah, at, at, at the beginning, I also think because it was kind of like, oh, gee, you know, that mindset. Now, now all of a sudden, now we're the university's friend after having this mindset that we were kind of like this counterculture thing going on. That went on for a while too. that little, the fallout there, which was kind of like that initial negative reaction. But I think after a while, people realized it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's definitely a, a, a lot of students were of mixed mind about it. I, I remember I was very glad to have sort of the, 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 the guardrails of the classics from Hofstra as I got used to being an announcer and engineer and then, and then combo cleared. It was, it was nice to be able to, to sit for 20 minutes and listen to a piece and then announce and then not have anything to do for 40 minutes other than watch the, the meters. It was, it was actually rather comforting to me. And then 
but then there's also the thing of, well, you know, this isn't what I would normally listen to. So I can definitely see the the conflict and certainly the, the pirate radio aspect of uh, WVHC at the time, sort of, you know, us against the world, uh, definitely getting some mixed messages. But um, so, so this program's growing and, and Carl's wonderful to talk to. And again, you said before, he knows so much about everything. He's, he's, he's such a knowledgeable and entertaining guy, but you get the opportunity to be classical music director. Was this something that was uh, in your mind or was it like, well, let's make Mike do this. What, how did that happen? It was kind of both. I wanted more responsibility at the station and um, Carl had uh, done it for a while until he was confident that somebody else could take it over. A woman named Lynn Hamilton came along and she was a music person, a music major. I think she was actually a jazz performer too for a little while there. Mm -hmm. And uh, she got involved in the station by doing that. And then she moved on for whatever reason. I don't remember why. And the position came open. And, you know, they said, okay, well, Mike, here you go. You want to, you want to try to do this? You know a little bit about it. You've done the show for a little bit. Why don't you take it over? And I said, well, I don't know enough about it to do that. Carl's like, I'll help you out. I'll help you out. And he did. And it was fine. And, and, and it was cool. It was, again, it was kind of like, you know, I think it was a, a sophomore by this time, but the sophomore wants to do it. So let him do it, you know? So, uh, and that's fine. So I, I did it. And it was just kind of like, I, I, Brian, I tell you, I, I, was a great student until I got to college. Once I got to college, I, I stopped going to classes and started going to the radio station, you know? Yeah. So it was like any, anything to be at the radio station, anything to help the station, I wanted to do it. So it, I was happy to do it actually, even though it was a little, little trepidatious at the beginning, but after a while it was, it became okay. So, so you're spending a little bit of time with, with Carl getting to know sort of how to program things and, and put things together. And then was there, was there a point where you felt like, okay, I kind of know what I'm doing here. Do it. Did you feel comfortable in the position? Yeah, I think I held the position for the, the balance of the year, and I, I got comfortable in it. And then uh, somebody else came along, and I, I think it was Nancy Zuckerman or somebody else took it over, and and you know they took it with my blessing. You know, it was a good thing to do, but I wanted to do other things at the station, so mm -hmm. you know I handed it off and moved on. Uh, I you know I could have probably ended up doing it for three or four years, I, and I probably learned a lot more. But I think I learned enough about it and really kind of piqued my interest in it. And now nowadays, I'm I'm recognizing pieces in movies and things like that. Oh, I know that. Uh -huh. yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that without the classical classics from Austria. So, you know, there you go. So you maybe aren't going to your classes, but you're learning things. You're, you're getting an education, just maybe not what, uh, what your coursework was. Right. Exactly. Understood. <laughs> understood. Um, so then you decide to go for PR director. And again, was this something that you were interested in doing or, or was it, uh, did someone point you in that direction? Well, one of the things that I always saw from, from, from the beginning, even, you know, as part of the paradigm shift, we weren't promoting the station the way we wanted it to. We mm. wanted it to be promoted. And a lot of us would meet and bemoan that. And I finally said, well, the heck with it. I'm going to, you know, see what I can do about it. And I just kind of got the steam started and then uh, the position became open and I was asked to do it and I did it. And like I said, I held on to it for a couple of years and I think I did a pretty good job with it. I mean, by the time I left the station, more people knew about it at least. So that was a good thing. And I, I started to become kind of like the, the the spokesperson for the station. I got people involved. I think uh, I first met Tony Sibilla at one of my classes. And I said, hey, you know, you it was actually, I think it was writing for radio. He was in the class, but he wasn't involved in the station. Hmm. So I got him involved in the station, talked to him about it a bit. And then he, well, you know what happened with him. He became a station manager. And now, now he works for uh, Music Choice and has made quite a career out of being, and he does some play-by-play -play as well. So he's made quite a career about being uh, in, in the broadcast field. Uh, and, uh, so I, I think that it, it was something that I realized that I had more skills than I, I, I knew I had, I, I, I kind of knew I could do something about it, but didn't know what, but mm. once I got the chance to do it, I took to it and I, I think it ended up good for everybody involved. Mm. Yeah. That is a, a, a constancy that, that, you know, the students are doing good work and they're working hard and we'd like the outside world to know more about it as well as the, as the students. So, um, it's a tough task you took on, but it sounds like you, you had your heart in the right place and, and you made a difference getting more people to the station and getting more of a listening audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really tried to do that. And I think, I think it was successful and I, I'm not taking credit for bringing a, a, a groundswell of people, but I, th I think I got some people involved that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been involved otherwise. Well, that's, that's a, a tremendous feat, you know, even bringing in one or two people and then perhaps they bring in more. And that's, and that's part of the story of Hofstra Radio is that we all help each other out. Like you said, when you arrived, Mike Larkin looked at you and said, well, okay, you know, here's someone who can learn some things and, and be active. And then, and then you turn around and do that as well, uh, which is a great thing about 
being at a student run radio station that you can you can do that and be the leader pushing on to the next generation. So that's fantastic. So so you've mentioned some great names, uh, Mike Larkin and 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 Tony and and who else who else was around at the time that that you were doing some of these positions? Who were the people that you were working with? Okay, I, I, I tried to make a, a brief list before I, I, I got started. Uh, <laughs> Suze, Suze, of course, was there. She was uh, hosting the, the country music show at the time, and uh, the w, WVHC Country with, with Suze. And uh, I, I later ended up working for her for a little bit for Sue Media, and throughout the whole time she was a presence there, and she's a great lady. I learned a lot from her. Of course, I mentioned Mike and, and, and uh, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, then there was a guy named Joe Barone who mm. uh, was uh, – Tall stick of a guy with, with with frizzy hair who was a musical genius and he was just he was amazing uh the things that he knew and the way he, he was around the station a guy we called vinnie the blade whose name was really mark d'agostino and he was called vinnie the blade because he kind of looked like somebody who should be called vinnie the blade uh <laughs> one of his one of his very good friends was hans oaks who was very similar to vinnie the blade but the uh, I, I guess swedish version of that and it's interesting because my very first time on the air was as staff announcer for hans oaks's jazz show he hosted a show called The Land of Make Believe, and uh, I was his his staff announcer. And uh, you want to talk about uh, learning something from the, the the last person you would think you'd learn anything from? The man did not look like he knew a thing about jazz, and he was he was very very uh, knowledgeable, and and actually knew a lot about radio too. So I had a good yeah. time uh, with him. Uh, I mentioned Carl Bucking, uh, Tony Sibilla. Uh, when I started doing uh, Airwave and, and then later on Nightlight and a few of the other evening shows, I would hang out with a woman uh, who uh, was called Kate, Kate Kulig. We mm-hmm. used to call her Misinformation because she was uh, the newscaster. And, uh, but, but she and I started to develop a banter on the air. So we kind of sort of brought the, the, the morning show banter to the evening uh, in, 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 that, uh, in that stance. And we had a good time with that. Uh, it was a guy named Stu Rushfield who used to do some sports and whatever. It was a good guy. Walter Ennis took over uh, as uh, one of the executive engineers, him and Matt Swayhoover. And then, of course, Walter went on to other things at the station. He ended up marrying Barbara Lyons, who was also mm-hmm. a station manager at the station. Uh, you mentioned Jason Levy. I worked uh, very well with Jason. A woman named Michelle Lisi uh, was around there twice when I was there. First as a student when I was uh, an undergrad. And then later on, she was one of the people who was, uh, I believe, operations manager well before uh, John took over uh, somewhere along the line there. And she uh, held that position for a bit. Uh, and then later on, when I came back and took the training class back in the 2000s, I worked with people like Andy Gladding and uh, Andrew Falzone. Uh, Fran Spencer, who unfortunately recently passed, yeah. and who everybody loved, uh, and of course Bruce uh, and uh, John and Ed and Joe DeRosa and that 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 whole crop of people of that era. So I, I got to know them. Uh, Basha, of course, everyone knows Basha and everyone loves her. Uh, I worked with Tony Jackson. I was his engineer for a number of years. Uh, worked with Irv Simner, who used to host Out Behind the Barn. Uh, I was his engineer also. So I, I, I touched on a lot of people's lives there. It was, it was interesting. And a lot of people's lives touched on me, too, quite frankly, too. So Yeah, those are some some great names, some wonderful names. I'm sure we could talk all day about all those folks. But I'd like to zero in on on your time. And this this could be from any of the times you were at the station. But if, if Hofstra Radio or College Radio comes up, is there a story that you always tell about your time at Hofstra Radio? Yes, absolutely. The, the, the time that, that I would get to know the, the, the couch in the, the Fort Track studio very intimately, <laughs> there, were, there were many days that I would sign on and sign off the station in the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget Hurricane Gloria hit, I think it was 1983. And I lived in Franklin Square. I was able to get on a bus and get to the station, sign it on at eight o'clock in time for the Classics from Hostra. Somehow I made it there. I don't know how. I was on the air the entire day the entire day. Nobody else could make it in. So I did all the shifts the whole day and I signed it off at two o'clock in the morning. And that was just such a, a, a wonderful and interesting and, and fun experience for me that, you know, at the time I just kind of did it, but looking back after like, how did I do that? You know, it was really kind of, kind of interesting, but, uh, and if, instead of going home, I just slept on the couch and the very next morning I woke up and signed on the station again. And finally that next day, somebody was able to make their shift. So I kept the station on the air basically through it. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, something I'm proud of, but something was just kind of like, oh, that's what I do. You know, it's just, it was just, just like an afterthought at the time. Right. Right. Uh, w- was there ever uh, a moment where the station lost power during that? Cause that was a big hurricane. That was a big deal yeah. when that happened. You know, we, we actually, I, th- I think we made it through uh, the, the, en- the chief engineer at that time was a man named Frank Renstein, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he and Mike had worked out 
uh, an auxiliary system of some sort. I didn't know too much about the, the, the technicals of, of, of keeping us on the air. I just knew I had to be in the studio and make sure the levels were proper and make sure the station stayed broadcasting. So I, I did my end. And as far as I know, we stayed on the air the whole time. Wow. And and then you must have done all the formats. I mean, you must oh, have yes. done the schedule, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I to, to the T. I signed on with classical music. Then we had our hour of public affairs broadcasting. Then I did the jazz show. Uh, I believe I read the news that night. Went into more public affairs programming in the early evening. Then did uh, I think Rave Up was the show that 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 the uh, pop rock show in the evening, and then Airwave at night and signed it off. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the the. The miracles of youth, I suppose. But um, <laughs> were you supposed to be on the air that day, or did you just go in because you knew it was it needed to be done? I think it was a, a little bit of both. I think I had a classical shift, but didn't begin at eight o'clock. But I said, "Well, I can make it in, so I'm going to try to make it in and go down to the station in case anybody else can't be can't be in." I think I had the eleven to two shift that day, hmm. but I went in for eight o'clock anyway. And luckily, the person who had eight o'clock didn't make it. I didn't even stop to ask. I just signed the station on and went on the air. Wow. It's, it's, it's one of these things that uh, there are so many events, that so big news events and weather events and things, but there's something that brings people to the station. And, and uh, I'm not quite sure what it is or if it's just the people that are attracted to, to working in radio and TV are the types that will take a bus in the middle of a hurricane to get you know to work on time. But I just what is it or what was it that that made you spend that entire day uh, keeping the station on the air? Was it was it a. Uh, point of personal pride or was it loyalty to the station? What, what, what got you through that day? Well, I mean, it was part of my experience at, at Hofstra at the time in general. It's the radio station kept me going. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's why I went to Hofstra. I mean, it's not why I went to Hofstra initially, but right. it became why I went to Hofstra. It became why I, I would go there every day. So, you know, it, it was just something that being the type of person I am always wanting to be a leader and always trying to find ways to have a leadership opportunity. I created my own. And, uh, you know, I, and that was my way of, of being a leader, making sure the station was on the air and kept going. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, I, my, my hat's off to you. That's, that's, that's a, that's a long day, but, but good for you. And then, and then doing, signing on the the following day as well. My goodness. Um, so that's, that's definitely a story that, that, yeah, you should always tell, but are there any stories that you rarely tell or, or don't come up that often that you wouldn't mind sharing? Yeah, sure. Uh, one of my later stints, uh, I was one of the panel on Hofstra's morning wake-up call, uh, and it happened to be the morning of 9-11. Mm. And uh, the show ran from 7 to 9 in the morning, and uh, I think the first tower went down at 8.56, right before we signed off the air. And believe it or not, somehow our news, news guy missed the story. And uh, it wasn't until much later in the day that, uh, of course, the air was filled with all the information about what had happened. But it was kind of ironic in a way that we were laughing and joking about the prior news of the day on such what ended up being such a somber day. And then, you know, so afterwards, I, we would always make sure that we would double and triple check all the, all the newscasts before we would go off the air, all the news information, making sure everything was up to date. It, it, it taught us all a lesson that, you know, radio is not just about having fun. It's about being there when people need you. In fact, it's even more about that. It's more about that, that intimacy and that, you know, that, that drive to get that important information out to people and how people need it. Even today, when radio has taken a lot of hard knocks from people and a lot of Mm -hmm. criticism, uh, it's still the number one medium when there's a crisis. And uh, that taught us the, the people involved in that program and the people at the station at the time, how important that was. To the station's credit, as soon as they realized what had happened, they went on the air and they were wall-to-wall information on, on 9-11. By that time, I was back across campus at my job because I worked at, the, at, at Hofstra at the time. Uh, and, and then a few hours later, they sent us all home. But, I mean, uh, you know, it was – it happened right before we went off the air and we, we missed the story. And that's – I always found that very ironic, you know. But uh, luckily, the station picked itself up and, and did what it needed to do the rest of the time. And all that information got out to people. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a weird time of day. Those of us who've worked that day part in in news or in broadcasting, that that sort of twenty minutes to half hour before nine a.m., uh, the tone sort of shifts, especially on a morning show. And 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 I know in my particular instance, I was I was just about done with my shift that morning, and just a, 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 an odd occurrence kept me on the air a little bit later, and then and then we carried on through that day. But, um, yeah, it's, it's something about the, the end of the morning shift and getting to 9am and going into the next day part that makes you sort of relax and, and give up, give up the, 
the I, I don't know, vigilance is the right word, but um, gosh, what, what? Thank you for sharing that. What a uh, what an experience to go through there. Did you did you go back to the station at all that day, or, or were you busy with your, no, your I, other job? I, I went I went uh, to the office, and then uh, there was the office of alumni relations at, at Hofstra, and then Hofstra officially closed at eleven a.m. I went home uh, and yeah. took care of things at home and whatever, and then uh, you know later in the week I went back to the station, obviously. But uh, yeah, that was a strange day uh yeah. but uh you know those of us that that survived it learned a lot from it so i guess it ended up in in, in retrospect being uh the, the a lesson that we all could use yeah yeah amen thank you for sharing that um gosh mm. um is there and again this could be from any of the eras any of the times that you were at the station but is there a song or an event or, or otherwise that kind of defines, uh, I guess, I guess let me focus the question this way on your, on your undergrad days. Is there a song or an event or something that happened while you were still a student at WVHC that kind of defines your time there? Uh, well, not really. I mean, uh, the, the whole concept of uh, a shift uh, or a program that, that ended up being called Nightlight uh, kind of happened on a, a Sunday night. Uh, Mike Larkin used to do the rock and roll show called Powerhouse from nine to eleven, and then I did the the show it was called Night Shift at the time from eleven to two on a Sunday night, and I started playing a song by Froyer called Doot Doot, uh, and it was very uh, kind of a ethereal and, and kind of spacey and what, and it was it was in rotation at the station, but for some reason I played it, and Dave Bolander, who was the program director at the time, called me on the air and said, "That's the sound of the new shift that's going to start on Monday." How did you know that? I said I didn't know that. I said it was just in in in, in the rack here, and I I played it as as part of this program, which because it it did fit. And he said, "Yeah, well, that's that's the, that's more of the sound we're going for, more of that lighter, less heavy, less guitar driven sound, or whatever." And, and so that was kind of one memory I had from that. But you know, later on in my in my, in my experience with with uh, WRHU by this time, uh, I remember working on some of the Irish marathons and I would mm -hmm. be the guy who would give the tally from time to time. And I would always joke how I was from the extreme South of Ireland, Naples. <laughs> and that was, that was my line, you know? So, and it, 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 people came to expect it after I said it a couple of years in a row. So I would always have to find the right, right time to say it when I was on the marathon. So that was kind of my, my little hook there with, with, with that, that reminds me of the station fondly. That's great. What a great line. You see, and I, and I just assumed D'Antonio, I assume that was an Irish name. That's, you of know, course. Well, how could bad, you not? Bad on me. I, I guess, uh, I guess I should have paid more attention. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great line. Oh, that's funny. And of course, of course, McK McKinley is Italian, of course. I mean, we know right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, yeah, you yeah, can, yeah. Oh, that's great stuff. That's great. Um, I, the, the next question, and I guess I guess we could take it for face value, but I, I, I might want to flip it around a little bit. The question is, was there ever a time that you thought about leaving or quitting or stepping back? But and I guess you can answer that if you want. But I'm also interested, like, what makes you keep coming back to the station time after time? We talked about it a little bit last time, but I'm, I'm always interested, you know, in people who are able to to make that uh, jump as, as, as an adult, as, as, as a, not a student to jump back into the station and get involved. Well, radio is in my blood, Brian. I mean, mm. uh, I grew up wanting to be the man in the box when I heard, you know, uh, Dan Ingram from the age of like three or four, you know, and, and I, I always wanted to be involved in that. It, it, it was the one place I, I think in my late teens, early twenties, you know, young adulthood, I really felt in place. You know, I, I really felt that, that, that it fit. You know, and and it's what I enjoyed doing. Uh, later in later in life, I ended up getting out of the business, and that's one thing I regret about it. But uh, so every opportunity I had a chance to get back into it, I took. And you know, working back at Hostra in in the early two thousands, I said, let me you know sample what's happening at the station. So I met Bruce, and we started talking, and he was happy to bring me back on board, provided I take the training class. I said, yeah. wait a second, Bruce, I've been a professional in radio, I've done this and that and this and that. He's like, I don't care. In order to get on the air, you have to take the training class. So I did, <laughs> and it was quite an interesting experience having to 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 work with with people who didn't have as much knowledge. It brought me down a few pegs uh, in, in, in my own mind and my own ego. And it made me love it even more because I, I got to see it from a different set of eyes, I guess, and a different set of ears. And so, you know, anytime I had an opportunity to do that, I did. And uh, one of the things being of the LGBT community and being involved in radio, I brought two LGBT themed shows to the station. So those were another reason to get involved because it was a place I can go to get, to, to get my programming out there as well. And they were 
initially not as receptive as they should have been on the first one, but by the second one, they were op- opening the doors for me saying, come on in. So, you know, it was, it was an interesting time, but uh, I kept coming back because I love it. And I would come back again in a heartbeat. Mm. So it, it, was it in the early 2000s when you, when you first came back, when you were working for the uh, alumni relations yes. office, was that when you tried the first LGBTQ show? Uh, yeah, well, it was around that time, actually. Uh, the outreach began in 2006, so I had already okay. uh, stopped working at the university, but I was still working at the station as a community volunteer. And uh, I think Casey Miles was the uh, program director at the time, mm. and he fought he fought really hard for me to get the show on the air, and he was one of the big people who, who helped me get that done. Uh, but it was, it was interesting. Bruce was receptive to it, but he just said we had to be careful because of the theme. Hmm. Of course, you know, as, as it happened, uh, it ended up being fine. I, I lasted about a year or two with that show. It didn't because it ended up being a lot more uh, taking up a lot more of my energy and time than I realized it would. Yeah. So, you know, I had to give it up after a while, but it was it was a good time. It was a good thing. And then back in 2011, uh, when I came back yet again uh, as a graduate student, um, no, it's after graduate. I was a community volunteer again. Uh, came back later on as a community volunteer once again, and that was the time that I did um, Out Loud and Queer. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that was uh, something that was uh, a, a music show, so it was a lot easier to do than a, a magazine program, which the first one was. Hmm. It, you know, from our standpoint here at the end of 2023 going into 2024, um, the culture shifted somewhat that programming like this is not only uh, accepted it's it's celebrated and sought after but going back to 2006 the the tone of the culture uh was very different and it was it was a big political thing that that some states were uh going for civil unions or same-sex marriages um i remember i think it was 2004 uh when massachusetts uh had a supreme court decision in their state to legalize same-sex marriage as the first state. And there was a tremendous amount of pushback uh, in certain parts of the country and, and, and so forth. So, you know, what I'm trying to get at is the tone was very different uh, and the expectations were very different. And yet you found people who were willing uh, to, you know, help you champion your cause and get the show on, on the air. And that must've been a nice feeling at the time, but it also must've been frustrating. I imagine. Uh, yes, it was, it, it was both. Um, there were a number of meetings among the executive board about whether the program should go on the air. I had a tagline that the queer radio show for everyone. And the word queer was a, the, the, you know, a, a question at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I might have, I had, my, my years might be a bit off, Brian. It's, it's in that era. It's some, some right. between 2001, 2006 at some point. Um, but uh, my year might be a little bit off on that. But, uh, you know, I, I remember at the time it was very difficult getting getting rolling, but there was always a need for it, you know, and there was a, yeah. and there are other programs out there and there were other programs out there uh, focusing on this 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 segment of the population. But there wasn't one in, in the Long Island area at the time that was was produced locally that was you know about what was happening on Long Island at the time. And so I, I learned a lot about the Long Island LGBT community and I, I met, met a lot of people through the show. It was a good, real good experience. And I think in the end, it ended up being something that. Uh, the station was glad to have on the air. It was interesting though, because they, they scheduled me right between the Irish music show and the reggae show, but uh, <laughs> I got on the air anyway. So <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, it's, it, it takes a lot to, you know, uh, taking a stands the right, the, the wrong phrase, but to, to get out there and, and put a show on the air that, that may not be welcomed with open arms by everyone, but is needed and necessary and, and helpful uh, for people who are looking for that voice. So, so good on you for that. That's, uh, um, you know, uh, the progress of the world sometimes is, is slower and more difficult than we'd like it to be. But uh, it sounds like you were willing to do that. And I'm, I'm guessing part of that was because you, like you said earlier, you felt at home at WRHU at Hofstra Radio that you felt a supportive community. So that, that again, must have been nice to have. Oh, for, for sure. Absolutely. Everyone I met at the station, I, I took to, and they seemed to take to me, whether it was putting up with me or, or being happy to be around with me or whatever, but they all took to me as far as I could tell. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It was also, I needed to kind of do it for myself, Brian. Yeah. I needed to be myself yeah. in the place where I felt comfortable. So it was an opportunity to do, you know, to, to kind of ex- explore b- both sides of myself. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, that's great. Um, the, uh, again, this, this could be many things and you've mentioned a number of things that could apply here, but, uh, do you have a biggest accomplishment or proudest moment in all your time with Hofstra radio? 
Well, I, I mentioned her earlier. Uh, Fran Spencer was uh, one of the people that I trained. She was in my training class. Mm. No, she was in the she was in the training class right after mine. That's what it was. I had gone through my training class or whatever, and then she started the next season. And she came in, and I I was her. She tracked with me. Uh, and I don't know if you remember tracking, but basically oh, it's where yeah. we'd sit and, sit and watch you yeah. and for a certain amount of time or whatever. And she always had these doubts about herself. And then once she finally got cleared and started to, to do things of her own at the station and got on the air, I was so proud of her. And, you know, and, and she just represents a number of, a number of other people I work with that came such a long way. And every time you see a, a young person who walks in the door and is, is very, you know, fearful and then suddenly becomes comfortable on the air, there's a sense of pride in, in, in that too. But with, with, with Fran, I worked very closely with her to help her get there. So she always made me uh, proud of her. And so that, mm. that would be, I would say she, she comes to mind, but there were others as well. Mm. That's, um, that's amazing to hear because so many people I've talked to, whether for this program or otherwise, mention her as being a wonderful mentor and friend and, and really taking, you know, these young students in as members of her family. And, uh, so many people were, uh, really uh, forthcoming with stories like this when, when she passed and to know that you had a role in making her comfortable at the station. And then they, she therefore passed that forward to so many more people. That's wow. What a legacy. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she was a great lady, you know, and, and hmm. that, that's all really that, that sums it all up. It's the truth. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, let me turn the tables a little bit here. Uh, are there funny events or funny stories or things that happened during your time at Hofstra Radio that still make you laugh to this day? Or you, you, you think of something and you're just like, oh, boy, that was that was something else. Uh, a couple of quick ones. Uh, someone saying Dimitri Shostakovich on the air <laughs> instead of Dimitri Shostakovich. I don't remember who it was, but every time I, I think about that, I'm like, oh my God, how, how, how uneducated is this person? But then you, know, you realize that, that you, you have to step back and say, wait a second, it, it's our fault for not teaching the person the right way. So it, it sounded funny, it sounded kind of pathetic at the time, but then you need to think, well, okay, maybe that's where we failed. So we need to do a better job with clearing that person before they went on the air. And then there was a, a, a story at one of the WVHC, WRHU dinners, if I remember correctly. I think it was the one where we made the flip from VHC to RHU. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody showed up in a gorilla suit. And I, I still don't remember the whole story, but I know that, that it had something to do with, 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 with Jeffrey and, 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 and Mike Larkin and one getting back at the other for something. I don't know. It was really silly. But we did a lot of silly things back then. Specifics don't, don't necessarily pop into my mind so much. But there was a lot of fun that we had in general, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um... You've, you've gone back to the station a number of times, so I, I think I know the answer to this, but it's a hypothetical. If you were asked to go back to WRHU or to fill in a spot, uh, first question, would you do it? Second question, if yes, what kind of program would you want to produce or host? I'd do it in a heartbeat, and I'd play you know, as, as much of the classic airwave stuff as I could. Yeah. I, I think that that music really kind of defined that era at the station. It was the, the, the one that, I mean, we did it before LAR did it. Back then, LAR was the Dare to be Different station, and they were playing a whole bunch of music that we had already played. You know, so it was kind of like you know, we were at the at the edge, and that that's such a, an important time in the history of the station that I would love to do a, a show focusing on that type of music. Mm, I would tune in for that in a heartbeat. That would be awesome. Um, what do you miss most about your time at Hofstra Radio? Um, doing radio and being, being around the people at such a passion as I did, you know, yeah. when you, when you're around people who share your passion, uh, you always want to be there. You know, it's, it's, and that's for sure. No matter what era I was there, there were people that shared that passion that I had. And that's why I always felt comfortable there. Hmm. Great. Um, if you could go back in time, well, we'll, we'll, we'll start with, with undergrad Mike, if you could go back in time for 60 seconds and say to yourself at 18 or 19 years old, here's a piece of advice. What would you share uh, with a younger version of yourself? Don't be so quick to leave the business. Don't Mm. be so quick to say, you know, oh, I can't make a living at this. Don't believe all the negatives that people say about you or that you say about yourself. Uh, that, that's my biggest regret, Brian, I think is, is, is leaving the business in the first place because it's so tough to get back into. And it's something that I, you know, I've, I've been wanting to for a long, long time. And I've had dips back in and back out for a number of reasons that, you know, will, will remain unspoken, but, um, it, it, yeah, definitely. I would say that whatever you do, stick it out. This is the, the, the right path for you because again, it's still at this age and I'm, I'll be 60 in March. So at, at this age, I, I still, I still yearn to, to, to be in the business. 
Yeah, I think once it gets in you, it's it's there. But it's it's a tough business, and I I, I dare say it's it's probably gotten tougher over the years with various changes to technology and ownership and things like that. It's harder to to have a lasting career, so um, it's hard. But do you remember when you were uh, a student? Did you have conversations with Jeff or anybody else about? working in the commercial business. And I, I think you went, you went and worked with, with Mike Larkin at WBLI for a stretch. Is that right? Did That's you remember correct, having, yeah. do you remember having conversations with, with, with those guys or anybody else about, you know, a future in radio? Yeah. But you know, it, it was kind of funny because my, when I was an undergrad, Mike, I was very, I had a lack of confidence and I, I, I didn't really want to talk about myself that much. So I really never really did that. I, I kind of sort of, like I said, Greg Fennell helped me get my first job in, in the radio business. I moved up to, to New Hampshire to work at a radio station he was working at. And uh, so I said, okay, good, I'm in now. So now I don't have to worry about it. Now once I'm in, I'm in, right? Of course, that was a stupid thing to think because I was I was out of that station in about eight months. But I mean, uh, at, at the time, it, it just seemed I didn't need to worry about it. I would just you know talk to a couple of people. I, I did talk to Mike and Jeff a little bit about it, but they would always have a way of kind of, you know, uh, focusing on other things and focusing on other people and whatever. And I, I kind of did it to myself. I didn't I, I didn't advocate enough for myself when I was younger, Brian. I, I should have done a, a better job of that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a tough place to be because the, the job and the career need a lot of confidence and, and I guess a certain amount of hubris uh, to, to get where you need to be. But it's it's also a time in life where we're unsure of each other. But um, thank you for sharing that. That's uh yeah, that's tough. But you did you did go on to do some radio and do many other things, including teaching. What did you bring from Hofstra Radio into your career and into your grown up life? Uh, the love of communicating. Um, uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, I like to talk, and uh, I, I, I learned how to do so in a professional manner and in a, a truthful manner. And and uh, yeah, I, I learned that. It's, it's as important as it is to talk. It's also more important to listen. And one of the things that being a, a show host at RHU and BHC taught me was how to listen, you know, because a, a, a good interviewer knows how to listen to his people as much as how to talk to them. And, and so I, I take that with me, and especially in, in teaching. You know, you, you don't know if you've reached a student until you really listen to what they have to say. If you don't know how to do that, then you're you're not a successful teacher or good in any kind of business, really. So I think that's that's the the, the biggest thing, the, the proper way to communicate, both how to speak and how to listen. Hmm. Yeah, and then you find out different ways to, uh, you know, for yourself to communicate as, as you listen. And you said this earlier that you listen to uh, other people who are at the station, and you went to uh, different programs where there was John Mike and the radio program or or whatever it was that you were listening, that you were taking these things and absorbing them. I'm sure you use those things uh, today, all the things that you've absorbed, and like you said, talking with your students and and communicating, whether it's the written word or the spoken word. Uh, I, I think you've taken a lot of that with you. Uh, along the way. Absolutely. I'll still find myself turning on my radio voice from time to time. Well, 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 God bless you for it. I mean, that, <laughs> what you said earlier that you and, and, and Kate Kulig used to do a, like a morning uh, banter kind of thing in the evenings. I was like, I'd listen to that because those are two great voices and you guys must have sounded awesome together. We, we, we did. We got really silly on the air, but we had a good time. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much for your stories and your time. Uh, this was an absolute blast. I really appreciate this. And uh, uh, well, thanks, Brian. I'm glad you uh, have me here at uh, the uh, Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. And uh, hopefully, everyone listening uh, enjoys this program and has a great time. And thanks for making me a uh, part of it again. I appreciate it. Have a great one. <laughs>